0: If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 23, as we come to uh, almost a close here in the book of Luke, and we've been in Luke now for about 21 weeks, roughly, Luke chapter 23. Hope you all enjoyed uh, singing this morning. Um, I think those songs have a lot of power to them, and a lot of reminders and um, freshness to them. Uh, lyrics maybe that we don't have memorized. Uh, lyrics that are hard to just sing in autopilot. Uh, you know, we just kind of mouth the words and, and do it. We have to actually think about what we say. Um, so I pray that it was a fresh reminder of you for you of the crucifixion of our Savior. and uh, As we've been talking through this series, we've been talking about Christ and the baby in that manger being born for a purpose. And I know we all talk about, well, we were born for a purpose. We all have a purpose for which we were born, and and that is indeed true. Um, What we've talked about, though, with this is that Christ came born for a purpose, and that purpose was to die. And that purpose was maybe some purposes... uh, uh, in addition to that, that maybe we don't typically think about um, when it comes to uh, the baby in the manger, uh, that the baby in the manger came to divide, uh, that he, he came and actually brought division. Uh, we think of Christ coming to bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men, right? Um, that's actually not what the text says. The text says, peace on earth and goodwill to them whom God pleases, Uh, And so division is a part of the gospel. It will divide. And yes, those who are brought together in peace and unity within the gospel, there is unity and peace there, unlike any unity or peace we can experience anywhere else. But he still brought division, Uh, even division within families, division certainly among people groups and And such. And and it's not that that reflects the character of God as God is united within the Trinity, but it reflects the division between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of this world, that there will always be a divide there. Uh, And so this baby in a manger is not necessarily this cute little cuddly thing uh, that that we think of typically or that our culture has uh, made of the Christmas season. But he actually came for something maybe a little more grotesque than what we would prefer to see during Christmas. Um, I want to encourage you with kind of a little bit of a uh, a thought here. Uh, Last week, um, my wife says to me, she didn't know I'm going to say this, so I might burn up some points here, but um, she says to me, uh, uh, she's like, I really wish, you know, in in preaching that wasn't so... uh, maybe so negative, and I, so I was kind of, I kind of thought through that, and, and, uh, if you know me well, I, I tend to drive maybe to the negative. It's probably more of my tendency. I'm not typically a negative person, but, uh, just theologically, it makes more sense to me to hit the depth of our depravity, and then let God's grace move us from there, and, uh, and so what happens typically in preaching for me and in studying is that when I hit the text, my natural tendency, uh, which I think is good, and I would encourage all of us to be this way, is, is to go, okay, what does this text tell me um, about God, but what does it tell me about me in relationship to God? So what happens is I look at the text and go, okay, this is my sinfulness, this is, this is how much I need God and then move from there to then enjoy the grace of God in that context. So I don't think it's until we understand how sinful we are that we begin to then can truly begin to move and understand how much we need God's grace. We need his holiness. We need So what happens typically is I begin to study in the beginning of the week for the sermon, that kind of begins to move in me. I'm going, oh oh goodness, this is who I am in light of who God is and and then, okay, now how, how much do I need God? And then I begin to enjoy that grace and, and live in that, uh, that joy of knowing that God loves me and cares for me. And then what happens is I come in on Sunday morning, and typically I try to preach both spectrums of that, but, but tend to focus in on where we are. Um, and here's the deal. If you don't take the text then and study it beyond that, throughout the week, then you might walk away every Sunday thinking that all I ever preach is negativity uh, and how bad a people we are, okay? So I want to encourage you to to think upon the text, to study it throughout this next week, every week, um, so that you begin to then enjoy uh, the depth of God's grace in the midst of the depth of our sinfulness. Um, Because I don't want us to just stop there, right? And I I try to do that in preaching even to help us beyond that. Um, But sometimes culturally, we have to, uh, because of where our culture is, even as a church, sometimes we have to kind of counterbalance that with an extremeness. So I think culturally, we battle against thinking so highly of ourselves. So in order to offset that, I, I think... We, I think it's just applying the text well. We have to counterbalance that with how sinful in reality we are. And so sometimes in counterbalancing that, I don't get time to get to the living in the fruitfulness of God's joy and God's grace in our lives. So, that, all that to say, uh, work through the text throughout the week. Reflect on the implications of it for your life. Uh, and I encourage you to do that every single week as we work through uh, God's Word together. So, Luke 23. I think Luke has two main points here as we work through this today. I think he has two main points. If you remember from the back of the beginning, he's writing this book for uh, my dearest Theophilus. Uh, he's giving an account, and, and Luke is, Luke is putting together, he's gone out, he's researched, he's interviewed, and he's put together this account of Christ's life. So that his most excellent Theophilus uh, would have something to read, to understand, to believe, to know uh, an, an accurate account, if you will, of jesus' life. Um, and so as, Paul, as Luke rather is writing here, he, he through obviously the Holy Spirit through Luke, is communicating to us to Theophilus. Uh, most foundationally and then to us by extension, um, some truths about God, truth about the life of Jesus. And then from there we have to think through what is its application to us, what is is its guidance to us, what are the implications for my life, what is it saying without saying it uh, would be the implications for it. But I think there's two main things that we see, and probably both could be rightfully their own sermons, but uh, you know, we, we try to preach two sermons every Sunday. Um, so uh, the first sermon will be basically on the idea that Jesus was rejected by all men. He was rejected by all men. And then I think the second thing that Luke is trying to tell us here is that Jesus died to save all men. So those are kind of the two main points or two separate sermons, however you want to look at it. Uh, We've joked about taking like a seventh inning stretch, but uh, um, we're not going to do that. Uh, uh, But Jesus was rejected by all men, and Jesus died to save all men. I think kind of the two main things we see in Luke chapter 23. Now as Christians, particularly in our culture today, I think we've been influenced greatly by um, self-righteousness. We talk about this all the time, but... um, by the idea that I'm capable of coming to God on my own. Uh, we're just, this that's Christ, cultural Christianity that, that I somehow have the ability to come to faith in Christ apart from the work of God in my life. That, that I somehow, both in initial salvation when I come to faith in Christ, that, that it's by my own doing. And then, subsequently then, in our Christian lives as we're working out our salvation or working out our sanctification, uh, we then... To think that we can simply, by our own initiative, by our own, so, uh, our own uh, righteousness, can come to God, and I think what Luke is going to show us here at the beginning is that all men have rejected God, and that all men will continue to reject God apart from God's work in their life, apart from God's grace. Now, I want to kind of set this up with, we have kind of three categories, and I think this is unfortunate, but we have kind of three categories that we, can, that we typically place people in when it comes to this idea of rejecting God. So the first one would be um, those who have clearly accepted God. I mean, those are people who have given their lives to Christ, and God has worked in a way, brought about redemption in them, and they follow Christ um, they, uh, they love God. They seek to know Him. They want to follow Him. They sacrifice for Him. That would be kind of one category. The other category would be those in our minds who we would say have clearly rejected God. Um, those would be the, uh, maybe the murderous people, the uh, rapists, those kinds of people. Uh, we would say, oh, they probably... I mean, obviously, we don't know their heart. God, only God does. But we would say they have most likely rejected God. But then there's a third category, and I think this is an incredibly unfortunate category, and that is a category of people who are kind of in the middle, but we still walk and pretend as if they're okay. In reality, they've rejected God, but they don't follow Him, but they live good, moral lives, but in reality, they've rejected God. But then what happens is that we functionally live as though they've accepted God by, by not embracing, by not injecting into their lives the truth that maybe you're not following God. Maybe you have indeed rejected God. And I think the scary thing is that there can be many of us even in this room that are in that third category where we think everything's okay, That we live like potentially we have received God or God has redeemed us, but in reality we've rejected Him and a a deeper look at our lives beyond the external would reveal that internally we've rejected Him. And my fear is that many of us don't realize that, that, that could be us. Maybe we reject God on a daily basis. Maybe, maybe we've intimately rejected Him under or behind the facade of religiosity that we've put up in our lives. So we've got this great external look of Christianity, but inside, it's really kind of void of the gospel. And that's the category uh, that I'm most afraid of. The other two are very clear, I think. You're in this category, you're here. And, but this is a category that there's a lot of deception in, and I think a lot of Christians live in that category. That's going to be kind of the first half of the sermon. The second half today, Luke wants us to understand that it is Jesus, that even in the face of this rejection, that he dies for all men. He dies to save all men. And I don't mean that in a universalistic sense in that all men are saved uh, because of Jesus Christ, but all those who would find faith through the gospel in Jesus Christ would be saved. And I wonder how many of us regularly, though, look for salvation elsewhere. For those of us who even have found redemption and God has redeemed us how many of us still on a daily basis look for salvation elsewhere? And, and you say, okay, well, what do you mean salvation elsewhere? What I mean is that, that from salvation comes uh, you know, joy and fulfillment and those things. How many of us look for those in other places as though they were our Savior and not God Himself? I wonder how many of us regularly lead our kids to look for salvation elsewhere, maybe in a paycheck, a job or in comfort or or whatever the case may be. Luke presents to us that Jesus is the only means of salvation. Now, all good things come from him. So, the two things that we need to see today is that the reality is that we will naturally reject Christ. The second is that the reality is that salvation is found only in Jesus. So first of all, Jesus was rejected by all men, and I just want to take a quick survey through the text here, where Luke is showing us how Jesus was rejected by all men. The first group that we see as rejected, or as rejecting Jesus, is the religious leaders. Let's look at Luke chapter twenty-three and let's read verses one through seven. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which was a lie, by the way, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And then he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So here, the religious leaders are handing... I'm sorry, there's the end of verse 7. So here what we see, the religious leaders are handing Jesus over to Pilate. Making accusations that should have led Pilate to have him arrested and killed. The accusations that the religious leaders are making are ones that if indeed they were true, then Pilate should have had him arrested and killed. You see, the Jews were making essentially political accusations that, that what's going to happen to the Roman Empire if Jesus continues is an upheaval, is, a, is an insurrection against the Roman government. Something's going to happen, it's going to explode. And, and see, the Romans understood that there was a healthy balance of religion within the Roman Empire. But what was at stake here and what the religious leaders were trying to convince Pilate of is that what was at stake is that Jesus would would disturb this balance of religiosity within the Roman Empire. But Pilate instead says he's innocent. And he knows it. So what's he do? He hands him off to someone else. Now, as we think about the, the... chances or the, the problems that this could cause the Roman Empire, the Jews also said he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, honestly, I mean, Pilate, I don't think, could care less at this point if Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. That's not a big deal, other than the unrest that that might cause the Jews. But king of the Jews, that's, you know, whatever. Jesus here admits that he is. So if Jesus admits that he's the king of the Jews, but Pilate still hands him off and proclaims his innocence later on. So I don't think that that's a big deal to Pilate. But Jesus, when he says that he's king of the Jews, he does not mean in the political sense that that the Jews were trying to proclaim it in that this king of the Jews would become a problem to the Roman Empire. And that's, that's the kind of the unrest that the, that the Jews were trying to project. But when Jesus says, I'm the king of the Jews, he certainly doesn't mean in a political sense, as we've seen that clearly throughout Luke, that at this point in Christ's uh, time on the earth, he did not come to overthrow human government and to set up his earthly kingdom in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. So finally, what happens here is, Pilate declares him innocent, but, in, but instead of just sending him off, he sends him to Herod. Go to Herod, talk to Herod, you're in his jurisdiction. Now understand Jer- uh, Herod uh, would have been in Jerusalem. He wasn't typically in Jerusalem, but he would have been in Jerusalem at this point, primarily because of the Passover. Uh, so it was very convenient, essentially, just to send Jesus down the road, essentially, to go see Herod, but he was in Herod's jurisdiction of, of Galilee. But Herod would have been in Jerusalem at this point. So here Jesus, we see, with the religious leaders, is rejected by His own. Now I want us to think, stop think for just a second here. Those who should have recognized Christ plain as day rejected Him. Those who knew the Bible those who knew God's promises, those who had the Word handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, to generation should have recognized Christ. Those who went to the synagogue every, uh, uh, every week who were learning the Word should have recognized Christ. And yet, they reject Him. And I think for us to live as though the possibility of us rejecting Christ is not there is foolish. Here, people who knew the Word of God, who knew the promises of God, who were seeing Christ face to face, reject Him. And I think the warning for us is, could we potentially do the same thing? Are we doing the same thing? Do you live daily giving lip service to God and worshiping anything else but God in your heart? Because that's what was happening here. It's just now it's become very plain as day as now they're ready to take Him and crucify Him. We, God's own people, those of us who have been redeemed by the gospel, run the risk of rejecting Him as well. Remember we talked about last week that we could be a Judas. We could be the one who would walk up and even kiss Jesus on the face so that He might be crucified in our own hearts. You know... For those of us who are following Christ and want to follow Christ and we love Him, understand that when we choose to worship anything other than the worship of the King, you are rejecting Jesus at that moment. Not ultimately in a, in a sense of, of a apostasy, but in a sense of, uh, I'm walking away from Christ at this moment. And I think there's many times a day where we all struggle with what I'm talking about. Maybe something has happened in life, family, maybe it's pain, suffering, something has happened that has driven us to despair, driven us to a loss of joy, and at that moment what's happening is God is simply revealing to us that idol, that that. Point that thing that has driven me to this point in my life, that this struggle or this, this despair is, is actually the thing that I worship more than I worship God. What is that in your life? It can be different things each day. When you choose self-righteousness over Christ's righteousness, when you're saying, God, I, 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 I need to fix my life before I can come to you, that's, that's you saying, my self-righteousness is what it takes to get me to God. And you're saying in that moment, I don't need Christ's righteousness. Rejecting it. Those are just a couple examples and I would encourage you to think through that. What does that look like for you? What does rejecting Christ look like for you maybe on a daily basis? And the goal would be to repent of those and to ask God to sanctify you in those places of your life. So first of all, the religious leaders reject Jesus. Second of all, The Roman leaders reject Jesus. Verse 8 of 23 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see Him, because he had heard about Him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by Him. So he questioned Him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treating him with contempt, and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Just very quickly here. Herod, here too, saw that Jesus was innocent. He wasn't willing to send him to the cross. He wasn't willing to for him to deserve, or willing to send him to receive capital punishment at this point, and what it looked like as death on the cross and crucifixion. In fact, Herod makes a public declaration of his innocence, but then sends him back to Pilate. I want you to think about this, though. Herod still, though, just because he's not willing to send him to the cross, his doing nothing towards the accusations and his innocence is still a form of rejecting Christ, still sends him back to Pilate. So I think we see the Roman leaders, we'll see that even further as we get to, back to Pilate here. And we see the Roman leaders reject Jesus. The next group of people we see that reject Jesus is the crowd. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevail. So, as we think about the crowd rejecting Jesus here. Once again, Pilate declares him innocent. Pilate, verse 13, we see that Pilate in verse 13, declares him innocent. What's interesting that we see in verse 16 that Pilate is still willing to punish an innocent man. Now, Pilate, a little bit later, because the first declaration of his innocent is done with the leaders. He gathers them around and says he's innocent. Then later, now publicly, in front of the crowd, he declares him innocent as well. And then we see Pilate has a plan. So instead of telling the crowd, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, he devises a plan where he says, well, how about I release Barabbas? Or how about, let's choose between Barabbas or Jesus. And of course, the crowd chooses who? Release Barabbas. So instead of Pilate, doing what he knew he should do, he comes up with a plan to hopefully get out of it. But it backfires. I think we see at this point that this is not the only point in time that Jesus' death secures the release of the guilty. We see Barabbas is set free, a guilty man clearly, and Jesus, an innocent man, is secured to die in his place. Now, I don't think that necessarily Barabbas is redeemed at this point, but I think the picture that Luke is painting for us is even before Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus will go in place of someone else who will be set free. Now, I want you to notice at this point, what influences Pilate ultimately at this point? I mean, could you imagine maybe sitting at that point, in that context, at that scene, and hearing the crowd yelling, crucify, crucify him. I wonder how many of these people live the rest of their lives with that scene, with that sound of the crowd just burned into their ears. Crucify, crucify him. What influences Pilate ultimately, I think it's part of this, the voice of the crowd. Ultimately, it was his own desire to do what was best for him, and what he thought was best for him was what the crowd was saying. He listened to the crowd, and I want to remind us at this point that the voice of the crowd is not always the voice of God. The voice of the crowd is not always the voice of God. I know this sounds like maybe a teenager question or a high school question of, you know, don't do what all your peers do, but... I want to ask us this question because I think it still has application for us no matter what age we are, but what areas of your life do you follow the voice of the crowd versus God? What areas of your life do you follow the voice of the crowd versus the voice of God? Maybe it's sports with your kids. Maybe the crowd cries, sports are crucial and important for the development of your kids and and So then as you commit to that, then it, then it begins to draw a dividing line between your following Christ and your time with the church family. And, but you go, well, but I need to follow the, the, the sports thing. I need to follow the voice of the crowd. Maybe it's a standard of living. Maybe everyone around you has a certain size house, a certain size car, a certain quality of vehicle. Do you subconsciously live as though that is the standard to which you must live? Again, following the voice of the crowd it doesn't mean that's the voice of God. Again, those are just two examples. But I think there's many ways, many other places which we can, if you sit down and think, where are you following the voice of the crowd? You know, even like Facebook is a good one to look at this. Because you can find what gets what gets all bunch of people all up in a tizzy, you know? Uh, Like this whole Phil Robertson, Robert, whatever it is, uh, Duck Dynasty thing. There you go. Did you get all up in a tizzy over that? Or did you think through it biblically? Um, I'm not saying that we should or should not have been vocal in that issue. I'm just saying, are we just following the crowd? Are we just getting worked up because we were following the crowd? Or are we standing up for something that was truthful that we needed to work through as as Christians, and there's a thousand other issues. But Facebook is one of those things. you know, it'll, it'll just it just goes boom, 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 right? If you watch the news feed, whatever the latest hot topic is, and then that fad just disappears in a matter of a week or two, and then we move on to something else. But what are we? Where are we following the crowd? Ultimately, the crowd here rejects Jesus. So to be careful when we follow the crowd. We follow the crowd in our style of living. Do we follow the crowd in our style of of dress? Or follow the crowd in our style of spending money? We follow the crowd. How do we follow the crowd? Here, the crowd leads Pilate to crucify Jesus. Is that the crowd we want to follow? I hope not. So, the crowd rejects Jesus. Next, Pilate. Clearly, I said Roman leaders earlier. Pilate wants to show us specifically here, verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Understand that Jesus is declared innocent three times, but still dies a terrible Roman death reserved for the worst criminals. This wasn't someone who stole a loaf of bread and they crucified him. This wasn't someone who just committed adultery and then they crucified him. No, this was reserved for the worst of criminals and yet the Romans themselves who created this idea of crucifixion, the Romans themselves declared him by two different Roman leaders that he was innocent. And yet he still dies this death. He still sends him and hands them over to their will. And I think the Father through Luke, God the Father through Luke, is going to great lengths here to show us the innocence of his son. It's almost like God is parading Jesus from Pilate to Herod back to Pilate to say almost to the world as, uh, to say this He's innocent. He's blameless. He's done nothing, and those who will put him to death have even declared that he's done nothing. He's innocent. It was like just watching him, as I as I read through the text. It was like just seeing Jesus walking from here to here in some sort of parade, saying, "Look, my son's innocent, but I'm still going to send him to the cross. He's done nothing." and I'm still going to send him to the cross. So Pilate rejects Jesus. Then the rejection continues, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to put... to to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription, also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Um, We don't have time to work through all those things in that passage, but I want us to notice Jesus' response Jesus' attitude, Jesus' words as He's being executed. I mean, Jesus here was literally praying for them as they were literally killing Him. Jesus was praying for them as they were killing Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Verse 34... Jesus was mocked. He was dying for their sins. He was paying the penalty of their unrighteousness as they were putting nails in His hands. And I have to wonder how we mock Jesus. How do we mock Jesus as He sits there before us with the nails being driven into His hands and we mock Him. Just maybe a couple examples here. Maybe not taking care to hear the Word of God. We talked about this earlier on in Luke, that, that, uh, that Jesus would encourage us that it, when we hear the Word of God, when we read, whether that's from reading or from hearing it preached or taught, that if we don't take care to hear it, that we don't spend the time to learn it, to understand it, to, to, to internalize it that our hearts become hardened, that we have basically two options. When we take care to hear the Word, then our hearts should grow softened towards God. There is no neutral movement. It is either softening towards God or hardening towards God. And I can't help to think, but when we, we do not take care to hear the Word of God, that we are essentially, as the Word is being proclaimed, the, the death that He died to pay the price so that we might hear this. When we don't take care to hear this, we mock God. Maybe another way we mock God is not willing to forgive those who have hurt us. I mean, Jesus is being hurt at this point. And what does He do? He says, Father, forgive them. I'm dying for them. Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So here Jesus is rejected by the soldiers and the onlookers and the the Roman leaders and the rulers. They're all scoffing at Him. And what does He do? (laughs) He responds with compassion and kindness You know, Christians, we read. You know, and I don't want to make this duck dynasty a topic, uh, a main topic of concern because it certainly is not. But I read an article in response to that by an author named Jared Wilson, and he says Christians, we should be thankful at the persecution that is coming. And now, how's that for perspective? We should be thankful at the persecution that is coming. And he goes, why? He goes, it's it's funny that reality TV, we have just seen over this past week. He basically said that that reality TV has now become a reality that the that the people in this country don't want to see. So that was the reality. Uh now they don't want to see the reality, right? So that was he just was simply saying the reality that is his Christianity, his following Christ. But they don't want that. Um and then his kind of play on words in the article, uh, or the play on thoughts here, was, was uh, maybe through this persecution, or this will happen through this persecution, that the real Christians will finally be displayed for who they are. And the real Christians uh, will come out. And so what he was saying is that, that the persecution will sift Christianity in this country. That those who genuinely are following God will continue to follow God. Those who are just religious, pious, self-righteous people, they'll go away. They'll be shown for who they are because the persecution will make that divine. So I think here, Christ, we see Him as rejected by those, by everyone. We see He's even rejected by a thief. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save us. I mean, here is this criminal who's dying because of his sin, and yet there is no sorrow that even a dying thief is looking down at Jesus. Even this thief looks down and mocks Christ. I want to remind us here that in the midst of all this rejection, Jesus is paraded around displaying the innocence. God is displaying His innocence, His proclaimed innocence. I think God is saying to us again, to the world, that my son is innocent. My son is a worthy sacrifice. And my son did what you could not do. He lived the life that we could not live. Jesus, we see here, is fully rejected. Like, then in the glory and splendor of this innocence and satisfaction by God, all of mankind rejects Jesus. Now, let me be clear here, or be precise. I don't mean that literally everyone at this moment is rejecting Jesus. Clearly, there are His followers who are not rejecting Him. But what I mean is that I think Paul is displaying to us that there is not a people in this world that are that is above, that are above rejecting Jesus. There's not anyone in this world that could not be in the group of rejecting him. Now, let me say a couple thoughts as we kind of move on to the next section, but to everyone, those redeemed and those not redeemed. The point here is that everyone has rejected God. That's what we see. There is no neutrality apart from the saving work of Jesus. There is no third category of people who have either accepted Christ or rejected Christ. Those are the two categories. And I think Paul is show, or Luke rather is showing us that so complete is human depravity. That we, we cannot, will not move towards God apart from the work of God. I mean, think about the entire Israelite religion. So I'd reach back in some OT history here, but the, the entire Israelite religion had been set up to show the need for righteousness to be substituted because our own righteousness we did not have any of. A whole Israelite religion sh- set up to show us this, and that an atonement has to be made for sin because we have many. I think Luke is showing us the depth, the all-inclusiveness of the rejection of his son. Now, do you doubt your own rejection of God? Like, do we do we doubt that we could never reject God? I would encourage you to go read the uh, uh, apostasy passages, if you will, in Hebrews, where he warns of apostasy, of those walking away from the faith. And um, I don't want to get into theologically that right now, but, but let me ask you some questions. Why can't you understand yourself better? Or why do you do what you, you yourself think is unreasonable or sinful? You ever wonder that? Why do I keep doing what I know I should not do? Why do we do the things we know we shouldn't do? Why do we not want people to know how we really feel and think about certain things? Why do we say one thing and do another? And yet, some of us live as though we're above rejecting God. I mean, something is wrong in the, with us, and the Bible calls it sin, rebellion against God, rejection of God. And Paul later would tell us that man does not accept the things of God without the Spirit of God. So I don't think any of us are above rejecting God, and we need to live this new year with that in mind, that we could be the one to reject God. Jesus is rejected by everybody, ultimately, because God is rejected by everybody. This is what happens in what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve said, God, we don't want you. We want want our own kingdom. We want to rule ourselves. That was the action of the tree. It wasn't just simply them eating of the tree when God told them not to. The act of eating from the tree and the knowledge of good and evil was the knowledge, was the ability to uh, legislate what is right and what is wrong apart from God. They said, "We want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad, not you, God." They rejected him. So, in this despair, in the tragedy of this point, let us let me remind us that Jesus died here to save all men. He died to bring about redemption. Like the story, you know what I'm saying? Like the story could have stopped there. They 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 beat him, they hung him on a tree, and show's over, right? Could just stop right there. But it doesn't. Let's continue on. Christ's rejection here is planned by God. And I want us to see how, why, and where it's planned by God. Verse thirty two of Luke. His two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 52, um, starting in verse 13 and then into chapter 53. Do you hear this passage? It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silenced. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off uh, of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence, and there was deceit in his, there was and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put he has put him to grief with when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This was God's plan. God had prophesied through His prophet Isaiah. God had told His people through the prophet Isaiah that this would come. And Jesus alludes to this passage in a number of places. Um, He was numbered. Here we see one thing: he sees he's numbered with the transgressors. Why? Why was he numbered with the transgressors? For us, that he would be counted in our place. He fulfills this prophecy in this rejection that He was numbered with the sinners, even even put up on a hill between two sinners. God had made Him to suffer for us. God sent Him to the earth to be born in a manger to die for us. For all who would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. So first we see that God had planned this rejection, this death, this punishment. The second thing we see is that the death of Christ was supernatural. There was something supernatural going on. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying, this is the other thief, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Here's a couple quick comments here. Notice that creation recognized the significance of Christ's death. Luke tells us that darkness fell over the earth. Now understand, this is not scientifically explainable by an eclipse. This is during the time of the Passover, the time of year where this is not possible. There would have been a full moon at this time. The darkness falls over the earth, recognizes the significance. Something supernatural has happened and is happening. Notice also that the separation between God and man was torn. If you understand the the curtain veil, the veil around the side of Holy of Holies was made in such a way that like the priest would enter in there, he would even have a rope tied to his leg and bells on his on his uh, uh, wardrobe, such that when they people would be, cease to hear the bells, that meant that God probably struck him dead, and then they could just drag him out by the rope tied to his feet because they could not enter into this place that was supposed to house the glory of God. So it res- resembled that there was a. There was a dividing point between God and man. And only on God's terms could someone walk inside of there. And if they didn't do it to the T, then that person would be struck dead. And the people couldn't just rush in there and get him out, lest they be killed as well. And what happens at this point, Christ is on the cross, is that that veil is torn, it's ripped into, symbolizing that God has made a way. To bridge the gap between God and man. And it was done by his work through his son on the cross. It was torn into. I really pray that you can't think of the veil being torn into and it not move your affections for God. That you love and adore him more every time we think that he made a way. The way of restoring fellowship between man and his creator was created by God at that point in time. Third thing we see, that salvation comes alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I think we see this, at least in part, by the thief on the cross. The thief goes, the one's mocking Jesus, the other one... Believes in Jesus, the thief, at this point, let me remind us that the thief does nothing to earn his salvation. There is no self-righteousness by the thief at this point. Understand that there's no water baptism by the thief at or for the thief at this point. If you're from a more charismatic background, there's no speaking in tongues that would give evidence to his salvation at this point. There's no joining a church or walking an aisle or serving in such a way or confessing to a priest at this point. He confesses faith in Jesus and Jesus says tomorrow or today, rather, you'll be with me in paradise. And then we see in verse 46 the last expression of Jesus' life. What's He saying? with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm just thinking, not too long ago before this, Jesus is sitting in the garden saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And here he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we just see Christ sitting both in the garden and here at this point. I mean, obviously the anguish, the pain, the physical pain. None of that compared to to the drinking every drop of God's wrath. And, And all he can say is, Father, not my will, but yours. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like, is that how we live? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, not my will, but yours. Jesus did. Here I mean, is here it is. Jesus is on the cross, rejected by all, being marked, being stricken. And the last expression of his life is to trust in his heavenly Father and his plan to save men and women throughout the entire world. Do you trust God, even in the worst of times? Which people did would Christ come to save? Who, who did He come to redeem? He came to redeem sinners like this thief that hung on the cross next to Him. Even at this hour, Jesus cares for the rejected criminal something happened and this criminal declares Jesus is innocent. Something has worked in this criminal's life to see Jesus for who he is and he makes this plea for salvation. I just want to remind us that Jesus in this most excruciating moment of his life still looks to the thief and says, Today you will be redeemed. Some of us have experienced pain in recent days, loss of family members. I was just in the hospital the other night with, with Scott and Olivia, and you know, just the potential that could happen there, and everything's doing good if you don't know that story. Um, God is doing good. God is working, has worked good things there. But I just have to ask us, in the midst of those situations, do you trust God? Do you trust God? Jesus did. And he was experiencing a pain that you and I will never experience. And that is, for those of us who are redeemed, he bore the wrath of God for all of our sins at that moment in time. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, Father. I love you. This really is painful, and I don't want this to happen. But, Father, I know it needs to happen. I'm yours. Just do it. Last thing that we would see is that Jesus' death would provide salvation for all people. Would provide salvation for all people. So first we see the rejection of all people in Luke chapter 23. That categorically we have people from each of these groups that are rejecting Christ. Now we'll see quite the opposite. Luke chapter 23 verse 47 through 49. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, look at this. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So here we see a Gentile, the centurion, calls Jesus righteous. He didn't do anything. He did not deserve this death. Jesus is the righteous one. Again, we see a public declaration of Jesus' innocence. I don't think Luke wants us to miss this. Here, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, we see, declares Christ for who He is. Then in verse 50, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Who was a ma- he was a member of the council a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in, linen, in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where there no one had ever, had ever yet been laid. Let's think about Joseph for just a moment. Joseph was a Jew. It says he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He was one of the Jewish leaders, one of the Jewish leaders that just took Jesus to the cross. But he, Luke tells us that he did not consent, though, to what they had done. He disagreed with what they had done. Understand what he's doing at that point by disagreeing and by going to the cross. To get Jesus down, to then take care of his body. And think about this. He's touching a dead body, which would have been a terrible thing for a Jew to do. And he's touching the dead body that the Jews, uh, as a Jew, of which the Jews just threw up on the cross. So for him to do this is, is crazy. It's going against all of those whom he has recently called friends. I'm, sh- I'm sure his rejection rejection, is coming from his friends, from the Jewish leaders, because clearly now he believes in Christ. It says that Joseph was awaiting God's kingdom. I think this means that he was a believer. He knew God's kingdom was coming. He knew that the kingdom of God was, was in Christ. And Joseph here shows that Luke, the author of this book, was was not anti-Jewish either. That it was not the Jews versus Jesus. Because here we have a Jew who has found faith in Christ. So this is not an anti-Semitic book, if you will. This is not Jesus versus the Jews. But instead, here a Jew finds salvation. Jesus came to save the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Look at verse 55. The women... Who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So the next group that we see here, we see women. Women were following Christ. Women had come on this preparation day. This is what they refer to as, on a weekly basis, as Friday. It was preparation day. It was preparation for the, for the Sabbath. And so they were preparing Christ's body for the weekend, for the Sabbath. And they followed Joseph to see where Jesus was laid. And Luke makes it clear here that Christ clearly came to save women. And as we know from the rest of the book of Luke, that Christ came to save those who could not save themselves. He came to save women, children. And that's important because in this culture at this time that men were so highly looked upon, and women were so not looked highly upon, and children were, were not thought highly of. And, and Jesus, I think what Luke's point here, if we understand the context, we have a Jew, a Gentile and women, in the last point of cruci- the crucifixion, who are following Christ. Those would have been the kind of the three big categories of people during that day. The Gentiles, because they didn't want anything to do with God. The Jews, because that was God's people. And then the women, the children, the group that the rest of the culture did not care about. Christ died to bring redemption for those people. So in conclusion, do you know of your utter and complete rejection of, of our Savior Jesus Christ. Like, do we understand that before God's redemption in our life, that we rejected Him? Do we know that? Do we realize our daily potential for rejection and the possibility of complete rejection even this day? I want us to realize Jesus died on the cross to save us from ourselves, to save us from our own evil desires. I mean, given to our own desires, we would choose death over life in Christ. This is what Luke is saying to us. No one would choose Jesus. If you go John, in the book of John, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he tells Nicodemus that apart from getting a new heart, you, you can't follow God. You can't be reborn. God has to do this in you. But then we see that Jesus dies, right, so that we might live, so that we might have newness of life, that we might be redeemed. And even when he's rejected, he still chose us. So think about this, even in our rejection. It's so hard to get our minds away from the fact because we we think we're just such good people. When we think about our sinfulness, and even in that sinfulness, despite our sin, God chooses those whom He redeems. Even as they mock Him, as they spit in His face, He still, in grace and mercy, chooses those whom He would redeem. So this baby was born to die his suffering was certain. His premature death was a certainty. He was born to die so that we might be born again to live. Right? So we might be born again to live. And I want that to be just some religious cliche That he was born again so that we might have life. What does that mean? What does that mean in 2014 for us to be born again because he died? We can be born again so that we might live. What does that mean? It means follow him. It means you get to follow Jesus. You get to walk with him, talk with him, walk by him, pray to him. You get to do that. You don't... Get, he didn't die so that you could practice religiosity this next year. He didn't die so that you could enjoy materialism and worship other idols. He died to set you free from those things. He died so that right now, this day, we could read his word, that we could pray and pray hard, that we could make his bride, the church, a priority. That we could learn the Word of God with the bride of Christ. He died so we could do this thing, so we could be set free from our sin. Like, don't make sin a New Year's resolution, it should be your gospel resolution. Remember that in Jesus' death, your salvation and, and in your salvation, your identity changes. Right, we've talked about this recently. We're, we're now servants, missionaries, worshipers. We're a family. We're learners. This is not because of what we do. This is because of who we are. Our identity changes as we are redeemed in Christ. Then that impacts what we do as servants, missionaries, worshipers, families, as a learners. And we live that out in everyday rhythms. So, Last two thoughts. I want to encourage us this week. Take some time this week and think through your identity and how you can better live that out in your rhythms this next year. How does being a family member, by family I mean church family, as a learner, as a worshiper, how can you better live that out this year? And then the second thing, the last thing I want you to reflect on is this. Reflect on the fact that it is only possible that you can do this because of the death of Jesus Christ. And next week, as we close out Luke, we'll see that it's because of the resurrection that we have the power of God to live out what He's called us to live out. So the cross has made the way. The resurrection provides the power. Um, and then we'll begin 2014 thinking upon the death of our Savior, His resurrection, and then, how do we live out the change that he's brought forth in our lives? I want to pray for us, and we'll sing one song and then we'll be dismissed. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that your word would not return void as you've promised that it would not, that it would not do, that it would not return void. And Father, I pray that. Uh, You would just, in these next moments even, send forth Your Spirit uh, to convict our hearts, to show us the depth of our sin, but then to reveal to us the depth of Your mercy and Your grace. Father, that You love us, that, that even in the midst of our sinfulness, that You chose to save us, to redeem us, to bring us back to life. Father, we've been made alive because the work of Your Son, because of Your plan that You carried out, that You decreed a long time ago, and that You've carried out so that we might be born again, that we might have a heart that desires the goodness that is Yours alone and would turn from the evil that is this world's alone. And Father, I pray this. we sing this song, that we would celebrate that we've been made alive because He died. Father, I love you. and Father, I pray that our hearts this year would love you more than they ever have. That we would get to the end of 2014 and we would look back and go, God, thank you for your faithfulness. I love you more today than I did 365 days ago. And Father, as we seek to love you and know you, as we look forward to your kingdom someday. Father, I love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.